Welcome to Australian Hiker. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 54 of the Australian Hiker podcast. This week's episode is titled The Future of Hiking 2018. I've been hiking for quite a few years now and certainly I've, I've noticed a number of changes. I can remember starting out as a, as a very young teenager hiking. My first backpack was an external frame pack. These days, it's pretty rare to find external frame packs. They're probably more in the uh, in the antique category, um, and uh, it's uh, it's just a representation of at least some of the gear changes that have occurred in hiking over those years. But I think there are a lot of other changes that have occurred as well. And what we're going to do in this podcast is talk about some of those changes and some of the things that uh, we've noticed, but also some of the things that. Uh, have a little bit of uh, research and a little bit of uh, a statistical analysis behind them as well. Now, as far as the facts and figures are concerned, um, it's a bit hard to actually determine off from the internet uh, without actually paying for these figures exactly where the future of hiking is concerned. But I did manage as part of this research and and part of the research I've been doing over the last 12 to 18 months, find some figures that will at least give an indication of where hiking as an activity is going. From the US, figures have come out of a study that show the number of participants between 2008 and 2017 that went hiking or backpacking in the last 12 months increased by 161% over that nine-year period. Now, when you compare that to Australia, and I did struggle to find figures that were relative to Australia, um, from 2010 to 2015, there was a 107% increase on people who had actually been hiking in that time period. So not as big an increase, but again, the US-based figures were for a nine-year period, where the Australian figures were for a five-year period. So what it does show as a trend is that more and more people are getting into hiking. I think one of the things we need to look at here is what actually is a hiker or a backpacker. Uh, and I think um, if you had have looked at the, the photos, looked at uh, who was wandering around the bush 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago even, um, it was a very different sort of individual. Uh, typically, they would have been someone who was passionate about hiking. Uh, that was their main hobby. Uh, and then certainly... Uh, particularly a number of years ago, we tended not to have multiple hobbies like we do now. We tended to focus on one particular activity. And I think there's also an element of accessibility as well, and we'll talk a bit about that um, later on. Um, but if uh, trails are more easily accessible, then you'd expect more people to be walking on those trails. Now, as far as trends are concerned... There's, there has been a number of trends that have become very obvious. And again, most of this is anecdotal. It's just something that we've noticed. And I think for a number of people or for a number of you who spend time on the internet, I think you will probably notice this as well. 
So the first one is meetup groups are now competing with hiking clubs. Meetup groups really are a function of the internet. Um, they really didn't exist uh, as such. Uh, we only really had hiking clubs up until probably the last 10 years. Uh, and and, and meetup groups tend to be something that's fairly new. And these are groups that are organised typically by individuals or groups of individuals uh, who have a common interest. As far as hiking clubs are concerned, they still, from my perspective, have a very strong uh, place in the in the in the the activity of hiking. But I think if you were to look at the number of hiking clubs that were around twenty or thirty years ago before the internet, there probably were a lot more of them. These days, I think we have less clubs. Um, because clubs in general often will rely on an individual or a, a group of individuals who drive the club and who keep it thriving. Yeah, and I think that's a um, a universal trend. Uh, it doesn't matter what the particular area is, recreational activity. Lots of clubs are really struggling to keep their membership up and uh, it often does fall to a few very dedicated and very committed individuals to keep things running. But having said that, though, some of the um, um, I've seen uh, announcements of anniversaries of clubs that have been going for 50 years or clubs that have over 700 members. The clubs that are around these days um, tend to be very strong and they tend to be very long lasting. So whether that will remain the case uh, will be interesting to see. Uh, but certainly the uh, the 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 weaker clubs have have passed by the wayside, and the stronger ones have just gone from strength to strength. And I think the benefit of hiking clubs is providing a uh, an environment that will help, particularly newer hikers, get into the activity of hiking without actually thinking about uh, all the details that uh, you you learn as you go on. Yeah, and I think that's an important point that a that a hiking club's got a very a strong role to play in um, building experience and um, helping people learn um, about hiking. The other thing that that's been noticeable as far as hiking is concerned is the the increase in glamping. So this is glamour camping, um, and it's now possible to do. Um, not just the basic trips where you carry all your own gear. You now have the ability to uh, uh, choose the level of glamping you want. You can have people carry your your packs and, and just carry day packs. Um, if I think about a trail such as the Overland Track, you can do that as a self-supported walker, staying in either tents on platforms or staying in the huts, carrying all your gear as you go. Or you've got the option of going on an organised trip, staying in uh, fairly upmarket huts, having very nice meals at the end of the, each day and just carrying a day pack. And there's nothing wrong with this. Um, I think um, the, uh, the glamping trend tends to get a bad rap from a lot of people saying, well, it's not real hiking or not real bushwalking. But what it does do is uh, it gets people out there um, and particularly as people get older and may may not be able to carry the heavier packs like they used to when they were younger or for whatever reason they physically can't carry a heavy pack um, they it allows them to actually 
get involved in the activity of hiking. So again, it's not a cheap activity. Um, when you so when you tend to put the term glamping in front of a, a trip, the cost tends to go up quite dramatically. Yeah, it's an interesting one because uh, we have some um, friends and uh, we talked to Amanda who um, is a volunteer with Operation Flinders a few podcasts ago. And she said to me that, you know, oh, you, you guys do um, serious hiking. Um, we do the glamping, um, she and her husband, or with Operation Flinders, they do the, um, the supported camping and, you know, I have to say, I don't really see it that way. Um, however, you're navigating the trail, you're on the trail. And um, I think it's great to see and uh, for all sorts of people with all sorts of interest to get involved in hiking. Um, and of course, the org- organized groups have been going on forever, both uh, local, um, national and overseas trips. Um, and, you know, I think uh, for me, there's a place for everybody. Now, the other other end of the glamping experience is probably extreme hiking, if you like, and this falls into two categories. So uh, as an example of this, the South Coast track in Tasmania, uh, where you go, go in or go out with a light plane, um, you're fully self-supported, uh, you're camping on open ground with no no assistance, no toilets, um, and it's uh, it really is a, a full-on natural experience. And I think people don't necessarily either do one or the other, but they may may gravitate towards one end or another end. And we're going to talk about that, this trail in particular, the South Coast Track, in a few minutes' time. So my version of this um, glamping versus extreme camping is that I'll do the extreme camping and then I'll reward myself with a five-star hotel at the end <laughs> and, a, and a bubble bath. <laughs> I've got Tim laughing then. <laughs> um, okay. In the extreme category, we've also got things like through hiking um, becoming more and more common. This still tends to be very much an American um, activity. And when we're talking about through hiking, we're talking about long distance hikes over a period of multiple weeks or even possibly multiple months. And if you think about things like the Pacific Crest Trail, which was made famous by the movie Wild, um, that's had a huge upsurge in the last five years or last 10 years because of the movie Wild in itself. Uh, In the early 1990s, as a trail, there was probably two or 300 people doing that track a year. These days, there are now thousands of people doing this trail, uh, and they're doing it for a number of reasons. But it's, it's, for most hikers, it's probably classed as extreme, and it still tends to be a small minority. In Australia, we do have a number of long-distance trails, things like the Bibbulmun Track in Western Australia, uh, the Hyson Trail in South Australia, um, uh, the Bicentennial Trail, which depending on who you talk to, it's not technically a hiking trail. It's a multi-use trail for cyclists, uh, uh, horse riders and hikers, um, but it, it's still considered Australia's longest trail. Uh, and those sort of trails are not done by as many people as the shorter trails tend to be. Uh, it really tends to be the, the people who are who are doing it for a particular reason, not because it's something they do every week. 
So the thing is about those longer trails, though, you can do sections of them, and and that section hiking thinking, I think, is is also an alternative and an opportunity for people. Um, I'm in terms of the true through hiking experience. I'm still at the point where you know, after a couple of weeks, I'm thinking I could be doing a lot of other really fantastic things. Um, so when you know Tim goes off and does his multi multi uh, week hiking, I'm not sure I'll be there. <laughs> In fact, I know I won't be. <laughs> And certainly, as Jill mentioned, I will be doing a um, a, a multi-week hike later on this year. Uh, location or trail still to be determined, um, but I'll be announcing what that will be in May this year. And you'll find me at a resort somewhere with uh, a close friend and uh, we'll be uh, drinking cocktails at sunset. Now, we talked about glamping, and one of the things that's developed as, as part of that is privately constructed trails. And probably a good example of this is the Scenic, scenic Rim Trail in Queensland, uh, which is mainly located on private property. Um, these trails tend to be constructed and funded uh, out of um, private funds as opposed to government funds. Um, but you know, when they're located on uh, areas that are, that are privately owned, it means you're not going to get the, the, the great masses of, of people that you do on the, the more commonly known trails. Um, so it's, it's becoming a bigger trend. It's becoming something where people don't want to hike with hundreds of other people. And they just want a small number of people that they, they see on a, uh, uh, on, throughout the day. So these privately constructed trails is something that is becoming more and more common. A couple of other things is things like more solo females on the trail, uh, and this is something over the last couple of years that we've noticed more and more, where traditionally um, you would see couples or groups on the trail. You wouldn't uh, see solo males or, or even, for that matter, solo females that regularly. Uh, but certainly the trips we've done over the last couple of years, uh, um, you know, the Larapenta Trail, the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail and the Overland Track, we've seen a number of single females hiking by themselves as well as hiking in groups as well. Yeah, and we do see um, males hiking alone. Uh, but I I think, and again, this is anecdotally uh there are more females who are doing that, um, which is uh, fantastic. And the other thing that's fantastic is really different age groups and a really varied um, range of ages from uh, younger to um, older women. So that's fantastic to see. And along with that, we're getting more newer hikers on the trail as well. You know, gone is the, the stereotypical hiker of um, – a male or female in their 50s or 60s uh, traveling in packs. Um, um, you know, these days um, you're getting people who are in their, their 20s, uh, 30s, 40s, uh, uh, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s doing hikes. Uh, so there probably still is a stereotypical hiker, uh, but it's it, the, the what that is is actually changing. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, it, 
it used to be that, and maybe this is a, a partly a gear issue, but there used to be a little bit of a, a gap uh, when uh, people had families and uh, they would come back to hiking perhaps when uh, their kids were teenagers. Um, what we're also seeing is uh, a much varied age group of uh, children on the trail as well. The next concept I'm going to talk about is something that will probably annoy a lot of people, but it is something that I think we're going to see more and more of. Um, and it's, it's, whether it's good or bad, I don't know. It's, I think people will have different beliefs. And it's something we'll call the McDonaldization of national parks and wilderness areas and trails. And what I mean by this, when you think of McDonald's, you think of going in, getting a meal, and you know that whichever restaurant you go into, you'll get the same experience in the same meal. And would you like fries with that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what I'm referring to here is the systemization of the experienced. So uh, it's not uncommon, particularly with the, the more well-known trails, that you start at one particular location and you go to the, the, same, the, the next location the next night and everyone does the same sort of trip. Uh, as opposed to everyone doing something different. Um, certainly with the constructed trails, it tends to be more of a, a systematic approach to how things are done. Yeah, and sometimes it even comes to the point of you're going in the same direction and you're expected to, you know, camp at a particular camp on a particular night uh, during your um uh, trail duration. So a good example of that is the Overland Track, where during the... Um, the high season, for want of a better term, you can only hike in one direction. Uh, during the low season, when there's not so many people on the trail, you can go either direction. And that would be when there's snow, <laughs> <laughs> middle of winter, um, and quite extreme weather conditions. So if you're up for that, then you know you you probably do deserve the reward of going any direction you choose. <laughs> The other thing when we, we refer to when we talk about the McDonaldization of, the, of of hiking is corporate sponsorship. Now, this has yet to really occur, and even in, in, in the USA, the, it's not really not, hasn't really taken a strong foothold as yet. But it's something that I think that will occur more and more commonly in the future. And I'll use an example here of the Australian War Memorial, and this is probably a um, uh, an institution that, if you haven't been to it, you probably know it or know of it. And most people might be surprised to find that one of their main theatres or their lecture theatres is called the BAE Systems Theatre. Uh, and this is sponsored by the company, BAE Systems. Um, <laughs> Funny enough. <laughs> they, they pay for its upkeep. They paid, I think, I think they actually paid for its construction as well. Um, and they've just gone through and renewed, uh, their initial five year sponsorship of it with another seven years. Now, they've got their name on it. Um, it promotes their company, but they've provided the funding to maintain it. Um, and in some respects, do we really care whether we go to the Royal National Park or you know, are we happy to go to the McDonald's National Park? If we're still getting the same experience, uh, preferably without the big golden arches spread through, that, that, that's fine by <laughs> me. Um, but it's, I think it's going to be one of those sort of things as – um, less and less government funds become available to maintain uh, the variety of resources and infrastructure and education and everything else our taxes go to pay. Um, the institutions like national parks who are losing funds 
almost on a, a national level on a, on a, on a year by year basis have to get their funding from somewhere else. Now we recently hiked the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail, um, and they are expected um, in the near future to become a self-sufficient trail, um, even though the, the the state government paid for uh, the um, the actual construction and, and the initial upkeep of the trail itself. Now I don't know whether that will ever go towards having private sponsorship or whether they'll just increase the numbers or the cost of doing that trail. Uh, but you know, they may well have to look at that option down the track. You know, and this is a really complex issue because the reality is there's uh, limited fixed funding um, available from government. And, uh, you know, if we all wanted to uh, support a tax increase, then we could have just about anything we wanted. But, you know, these national parks um, and these wilderness trails and the funding for them is competing with healthcare and competing with, um, you know, any other range of uh, government services, social services, economic benefit that uh, we expect, um, you know, f- from schools all the way through to um, basic services. So it does get a, a, a little bit complex um, and, you know, we can all say that the government sh- ought to do something about that. Uh, but the reality is, you know, unless we're willing to pay, unless we're willing to do that in the form of fees or do that in the form of higher taxes, there's a limited budget to go around. The next thing that leads us on to is pay-to-walk trails. Um, and what I mean by this is this is trails where you actually pay a fee to go through and walk the trail. So three good examples of this is the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail. Uh, which at the moment costs $161 to walk. The Three Capes Walk in Tasmania, uh, which costs $490 per adult to walk. And the Overland Track, which costs $200 plus park fee uh, to walk. Now, these trails uh, respectively are 66, 46 and 65 kilometres long, approximately. Um, And... Uh, you know, those sort of distances seem to be the magic figure for most people who are doing a multi-day hike uh, without getting extreme. Um, the Three Capes Walk, uh, which was completed a few years ago now, uh, the Tasmanian government spent just over $25 million in constructing that trail, and they need to get funds back from that to maintain it uh, and to keep keep spending money and keep upgrading it. So as a result, $490, it's, a, it's probably the most expensive government-run or government-maintained uh, trail in the Australian market. The, um, what these things do, and again, this probably all started with the Overland Track, and I was talking to one of the rangers when we were down there, and they said um, the thing that really did it for them was um, they had uh, Waterfall Hut, they had 200 people turn up to the hut on the one night. Um, <laughs> and this is a hut that's designed to sleep approximately 24 people. You might get another 24 people outside, and you know, but you, you end up with 200 people turning up, and that are going to be moving through the trail. These days, there's approximately about 9,000 people a year that do the overland track, which was about the same number that did it before the fees came in. 
But what it does mean is the number of people that are being spread out throughout the year and you're not having huge numbers impact on the environment and destroying the environment. So $200 really isn't a lot of money to do this track. Um, it does stop some people from doing it because you know they're going to have to not just get there, they're going to have to pay for it, uh, but it stops the trail being destroyed. Well, I guess the trail being destroyed is partly the evening out of the the traffic, but it also gives them an opportunity to invest and maintain the trail as well. Um, and that's another controversial thing because, you know, sometimes uh, people think, well, if I've got to walk on a boardwalk, um, that's not the real trail experience. But the point of walking on the boardwalk is so that you're protecting the environment and you're directing the traffic on a particular part. And, you know, on the overland track, we saw plenty of places where, you know, it was a little bit muddy and instead of walking straight through the middle of the mud, because, you know, we've all got boots on, people started to walk around the mud and that started to create a bigger trail and a bigger bulge in the in the track. In that respect, I, I work in the, the heritage field um, for government and I um, managed as part of my job to come across people from various states, including from Tasmanian parks. And beginning of last year, I was talking to them about this exact issue, not as part of my job, just as more as interest during one of our breaks in work. And they were talking about the South Coast track in Tasmania. And apparently the popularity of this track has become, is increasing dramatically over the last couple of years in particular. The trails are becoming braided. Uh, you're often walking through large mud piles because so many people are going through and doing this. And they're, they are seriously looking at turning the South Coast track into a version of the Overland track with boardwalks and huts uh, and toilet facilities along the trail. Now, a lot of people are not going to like this because you're taking a, a trail that gives you a wilderness experience and turns it into something a bit more more glamping style, if you like. Uh, the other option they've got is to stop people hiking uh, and say, right, that's it. We're going to license it. We'll only let a small number of people do it each year, which means that you might take five or ten years to actually get on there. Um, uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, the lesser of two evil. Do you stop people hiking it or restrict people hiking it or do you provide, provide the facilities but in the same process change the experience? I don't know what the right answer to that is, but certainly the status quo is not an option. Uh, the trail is basically being destroyed or being loved to death. Yeah. And it's a really interesting one because, you know, we'll have listeners who uh, are very much of the view of less people is best. So just stop them. But, you know, potentially that might be stop you. And then others will be thinking, well, you know, let's, let's make it so that as many people as possible can have that experience. And so, um, support the track and put the boardwalks in so that that's possible. And as Tim said, we we don't know. We don't know what the right answer is, but um, there's a there's a particular trend. So uh, expect to see more of this. And that brings us on to our next topic of: Are we loving our trails to death? So, as I mentioned, the South Coast track in Tasmania was probably a good example of that. The Overland track had that situation. They changed the booking system. They put in the boardwalks uh, to help resolve a lot of the issues. But one of the th contributing factors to killing a lot of trails is basically social media. 
And um, there is a trend now where through Instagram where you're sharing photos, people see these amazing tracks. And I'll be honest here, I'm one of these people by running this blog that contributes to that. Um, and people see these amazing sites and think, oh, let's go out there. This is re- this looks really amazing. I'm just really glad we've moved on from the plates of food, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And what we mean by killing with, uh, sites with social media is geotagging the photos. And this is something that we don't do. Uh, we put the photos up, but we don't put the location information there so people can go straight to that same spot. Now, with geotagging, what it means is, you know, you as a camper or a hiker go camping in a relatively unknown area. Uh, You post your picture to Facebook or Instagram and geotag it, which allows other people to find exactly where that location is. Other people who are on social media see this and choose to visit that site, uh, and they do the same thing and the numbers increase. So... You know, you can all think of the the amazing photos, and I'm not claiming that this is any of ours, that you see on on some of the Instagram sites that are just spectacular, Then and, and think, geez, I'd really like to go there and have a look at that, uh, along with the other thousands of other people who are looking at the same photo, thinking, yeah, we'll do the same thing as well. Now, I'll use an example, not so much of one of the big trails, but one of the, the smaller trails that we I did just on the, re, the, the weekend just gone. And this was when I hiked the main range trail in Kosciuszko National Park in New South Wales. This is probably one of the better known hikes in the Kosciuszko National Park. Um, It's something I'd wanted to do because I'd seen so many other people do a write-up of it and tell you how amazing this trail was. So on the Friday of the long weekend is gone. I get up there. I'm hiking the trail. I have to park 500 metres away from the trailhead because there's about um, there's the traffic lines the road to park your cars each side of it. Uh, and during that hike, uh, there were 80 other people on the trail. Um, that you counted. <laughs> that, that I counted. And there would have been people ahead of me and people behind me as well. And apparently with Mount Kosciuszko, which is Australia's highest mountain, approximately 100,000 people each year do the summit walk. Uh, now, there's not the sort of numbers of people doing the, the the main range walk, but certainly it's become one of those sort of trails where next time I do it, and I will do it again, I will do it, uh, I will start basically walking at around about 7 o'clock in the morning, uh, and I'll probably do it the yeah, do it uh, clockwise rather than anti-clockwise, just to sort of beat the crowds and see it in a different manner. Uh, but this is just one example. I've had hikes that I've posted on our website uh, and I get um, uh, war- emails from the from Google saying you've got a try you've got a, a page that's doing exceptionally well and we can't explain why uh, and then you sort of realize that one of the local hiking groups, has used um, my trail write-up to, to go through and do visits, and they're taking groups out there. And that's that's what we intended it to do. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting that people, you provide the information, and all of a sudden they're able to get out there, whereas previously, without the information, they weren't so confident. So... Social media, wonderful thing. Love uh, it and hate <laughs> it. <laughs> um, and again, as I said, I'm a contributor to it. Um, but as I said, we don't geotag our photos. So while you might know how to get to a particular trail, you might know might not know exactly where a particular photo was taken from. Yeah. 
Okay. Um, the next, we we're down to the last couple of things we wanted to talk about today. And the la- the second last one is gear. Now, many of you who have been involved in hiking over the last few years, or, or even many of you who are new to hiking, would have noticed this recently that um, one of Australia's best-known hiking um, franchises, uh, Mountain Designs, is actually going to be closing a third of their stores uh, starting la- uh, late last year and going into this year. Um, you know the amount of competition on the market now from both other stores, from social media, uh, from uh, from websites, uh, from overseas um, uh, stores, from Amazon, um, all contribute to making the market very difficult. So it's one of these sort of things there. I do buy online, but I typically tend to buy product online that I cannot get into stores. And as as I, if those of you who have listened to this podcast before know that I have size 14 feet, I struggle to find footwear in most of the hiking stores. And it's not unusual that the only way I can get shoes that fit me is to actually buy them from online and even from overseas because I cannot get them in Australia. So I think I do like supporting the bricks and mortar stores. I do have a couple of stores in particular that I will go into and support, um, but I also buy online. Uh, and what I'm getting from the bricks and mortar stores is is customer service. People who have experience with the gear, who are actually able to tell me about it uh, and tell me what the issues are or aren't. Uh, and and you know, once I've gone through and got this advice, I don't walk in, get the advice, and walk out and buy it online from the cheapest place I get. Uh, if I've gone through and and spent the time talking to people in store, I will actually go through and buy it from them as well. The other thing in in gear that that is becoming very that is accelerating quite rapidly is the lightweight gear trend. Uh, the tents, the packs, uh, the boots, uh, the hiking poles, which are now made of carbon fiber, all go to contributing to lightening the weight of hiking gear. Um, you can still buy the more traditional hiking gear, which is heavier and costs less. Uh, but again, as people start living longer and want to do their outdoor activities longer, this hike of the lightweight gear allows people to to keep doing what they, they love doing. Um, so we are seeing more and more lightweight gear from all the mainstream manufacturers as well as the cottage manufacturers uh, coming onto the market. And that also brings us to there's a broader range of equipment on the market, uh, equipment brands that we didn't see two or three years ago in Australia are now becoming more common. As we become a global market, we're starting to see a lot of the US and a lot of European brands that we couldn't get, couldn't source before in the Australian market. And this is a good thing. It, it provides us with more, uh, more a bigger range. Uh, it hopefully keeps the, the prices competitive um, and gives us a bit more versatility in what we can go through and choose. Now, the last thing I wanted to talk about is technology on the trail. And again, as someone who uh, runs a blog and uh, produces a podcast, I go hiking with a certain amount of technology. Um, you know, apart from the phone, which everyone tends to take with them these days, I've got a um, a, a portable voice recorder. Uh, I've got a um, uh, uh, various uh, other bits and pieces in relation to cameras. I'm certainly gearing myself up uh, with various bits of technology, which all add to technology in the trail. 
Probably one of the biggest things that most people would have noticed is things like drones. Uh, and recently we did the Kangaroo Island Wilderness Trail and there was a number of the, their main sites where they've got uh, no drone signs put up. Uh, uh, but people still tend to ignore those. <laughs> Having said that, we saw we saw a couple of drones. Uh, the rangers weren't happy, but uh, they probably weren't there at the time. Um, <laughs> read uh, the signs, please. <laughs> and also, when you you know when you can control these things from hundreds of meters away, you know we saw a drone. We didn't know you know we could we knew we knew where it was going to, where it had come from, but we couldn't see who was operating it. Um, I think I, it, it will be a matter of time. Before you know, it might be two, five, ten years, but at some point, uh, we will get uh, people doing a having a drone follow them on a, a multi-week hike, taking photos of their entire trip. So as the battery life eventually gets to being being that sort of quality, that's where we're heading towards. And I must admit, it's good to have drone footage, but it's not good to have it um, buzzing along the trail, annoying everybody. So I think there's a, there's a balance there. They, they, they serve no, a purpose. <laughs> there's not a balance. I mean, it defeats the purpose, seriously. You know, uh, the whole experience is about being out there and about, you know, doing it for yourself. And, uh, and, and you know, I'm so grateful. I'm so pleased when my mobile phone does not have a signal. Can we just kind of go back to basics just for a few days? So as you can see, it's, it's one of those sort of things. I think people will will, will fall on one side of the fence there uh, with a, a pro or anti drones, pro or anti technology, and again, even not quite as as extreme if you like. I actually record podcasts and interview people on the longer hikes that we do. Uh, I try not to bother people. Um, no, but you do whisper like David Attenborough <laughs> when he's <laughs> creeping up on some, you know, very special creature. But <laughs> so, but it does provide that. Uh, it helps provide that information that people wouldn't have necessarily got in the past. So again, there is the balance of technology there. Okay, so that's all for today's episode on the future of hiking. Um, it's it's a bit of a break from our normal podcasts, but it's something I just wanted to go through and discuss. Our next episode will be one of two bonus episodes for February, uh, and the next episode is going to be a weekend on the main range, which is a podcast that I recorded on my re- recent weekend on the main range and Kosciuszko uh, walks that I undertook. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Um, as always, this podcast can be downloaded through our website. Uh, you can listen through iTunes or Stitcher or any one of the other podcatchers. If you have the opportunity, please go through and provide a rating on iTunes to help get the message out there. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.